Section 12. The Fannings, The Song of the River, Mirage, of On a Chinese Screen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Number. On a Chinese Screen by W. Somerset Maugham. Chapters 32 through 34. The Fannings. They lived in a fine square house with a veranda all round it, on the top of a low hill that faced the river, and below them, a little to the right, was another fine square house which was the customs, and to this, for he was deputy commissioner, Fanning went every day. The city was five miles away, and on the river bank was nothing but a small village which had sprung up to provide the crews of junks with what gear or food they needed. In the city were a few missionaries, but these they saw seldom, and the only foreigners in the village besides themselves were the tide-waiters. One of these had been an able seaman, and the other was an Italian. They both had Chinese wives. The Fannings asked them to tiffin on Christmas Day and on the King's birthday, but otherwise their relations with them were purely official. The steamers stayed but half an hour, so they never saw the captains or the chief engineers who were the only white men on them, and for five months in the year the water was too low for steamers to pass. Oddly enough it was then they saw most foreigners, for it happened now and again that a traveller, a merchant or consular official perhaps, more often a missionary, going upstream by junk tied up for the night, and then the commissioner went down to the river and asked him to dine. They lived very much alone. Fanning was extremely bald, a short, thick-set man with a snub nose and a very black moustache. He was a martinet, aggressive, brusque, with a bullying manner, and he never spoke to a Chinese without raising his voice to a tone of rasping command. Though he spoke fluent Chinese, when one of his boys did something to displease him, he abused him roundly in English. He made a disagreeable impression on you till you discovered that his aggressiveness was merely an armor put on to conceal a painful shyness. It was a triumph of his will over his disposition. His gruffness was an almost absurd attempt to persuade those with whom he came in contact that he was not frightened of them. You felt that no one was more surprised than himself that he was taken seriously. He was like those little grotesque figures that children blow out like balloons, and you had an idea that he went in lively fear of bursting, and then everyone would see that he was but a hollow bladder. It was his wife who was constantly alert to persuade him that he was a man of iron, and when the explosion was over she would say to him, you know, you frighten me when you get in those passions, or, I think I'd better say something to the boy, he's quite shaken by what you said. Then Fanning would puff himself up and smile indulgently. When a visitor came, she would say, The Chinese are terrified of my husband, but of course they respect him. They know it's no good trying any of their nonsense with him. Well, I ought to know how to treat them, he would answer with beetling brows. I've been over twenty years in the country. Mrs. Fanning was a little plain woman, wizened like a crab-apple, with a big nose and bad teeth. She was always very untidy, her hair, going a little gray, was continually on the point of falling down. Now and then, in the midst of conversation, she would abstractedly take out a pin or two, give it a shake, and without troubling to look in the glass, insecurely fix its few thin wisps. She had a love of brilliant color, and she wore fantastic clothes which she and the sewing Emma ran up together from the fashion papers, but when she dressed she could never find anything that went with anything else, and she looked like a woman who had been rescued from shipwreck and clothed in any oddments that could be found. She was a caricature, and you could not help smiling when you looked at her. The only attractive thing she had was a soft and extremely musical voice, and she spoke with a little drawl which came from I know not what part of England. The Fannings had two sons, one of nine and one of seven, and they completed the solitary household. 
They were attractive children, affectionate and demonstrative, and it was pleasant to see how united the family was. They had little jokes together that amused them hugely, and they played pranks with one another as though not one of them was more than ten. Though they had so much of one another's society, it really looked as though they could not bear to be out of one another's sight, and each day when Fanning went to his office, his boys would hardly let him go, and each day when he returned they greeted him with extravagant delight. They had no fear of his gruff bluster. And presently you discovered that the center of this concord was that little, grotesque, ugly woman. It was not chance that kept the family united, nor peculiarly agreeable dispositions, but a passion of love in her. From the moment she got up in the morning till the time she went to bed, her thoughts were occupied with the welfare of the three male persons who were in her charge. Her active mind was busy all the time with schemes for their happiness. I do not think a thought of self ever entered her untidy head. She was a miracle of unselfishness. It was really hardly human. She never had a hard word for anyone. She was very hospitable, and it was she who caused her husband to go down to the houseboats and invite travelers to come up to dinner, but I do not think she wanted them for her own sake. She was quite happy in her solitude, but she thought her husband enjoyed a talk with strangers. "'I don't want him to get in a rut,' she said. "'My poor husband, he misses his billiards and his bridge. It's very hard for a man to have no one to talk to but a woman.' Every evening when the children had been put to bed they played piquet. She had no head for cards, poor dear, and she always made mistakes, but when her husband upbraided her she said, You can't expect everyone to be as clever as you are. And because she so obviously meant what she said, he could not find it in his heart to be angry with her. Then when the commissioner was tired of beating her, they would turn on the gramophone and sitting side by side listen in silence to the latest songs from the musical comedies of London. You may turn up your nose. They lived ten thousand miles away from England, and it was their only tie with the home they loved. It made them feel not quite so utterly cut off from civilization, and presently they would talk of what they would do with the children when they grew up. Soon it would be time to send them home to school, and perhaps a pang passed through the little woman's gentle heart. "'It'll be hard for you, Bertie, when they go,' she said. "'But perhaps we shall be moved then to some place where there's a club, and you'll be able to go and play bridge in the evenings.'" THE SONG OF THE RIVER you hear it all along the river, you hear it loud and strong from the rowers as they urge the junk with its high stern, the mast lashed alongside down the swift running stream. You hear it from the trackers, a more breathless chaunt, as they pull desperately against the current, half a dozen of them perhaps if they are taking up a woo-pan, a couple of hundred if they are hauling a splendid junk, its square sail set over a rapid. On the junk a man stands amidships beating a drum incessantly to guide their efforts, and they pull with all their strength like men possessed, bent double, and sometimes in the extremity of their travail they crawl on the ground on all fours like the beasts of the field. They strain, strain fiercely against the pitiless might of the stream. The leader goes up and down the line, and when he sees one who is not putting all his will into the task he brings down his split bamboo on the naked back. Each one must do his utmost, or the labor of all is vain and still they sing a vehement, eager chaunt, the chaunt of the turbulent waters. I do not know how words can describe what there is in it of effort. It serves to express the straining heart, the breaking muscles, and at the same time the indomitable spirit of man which overcomes the pitiless force of nature. Though the rope may part and the great junk swing back, in the end the rapid will be passed, and at the close of the weary day there is the hearty meal and perhaps the opium pipe with its dreams of ease. But the most agonizing song is the song of the coolies who bring the great bales from the junk up the steep steps to the town wall. Up and down they go, endlessly, and endless as their toil rises their rhythmic cry, He, ah, ah, oh. 
They are barefoot and naked to the waist. The sweat pours down their faces, and their song is a groan of pain. It is a sigh of despair. It is heart-rending. It is hardly human. It is the cry of souls in infinite distress, only just musical, and that last note is the ultimate sob of humanity. Life is too hard, too cruel, and this is the final despairing protest. That is the song of the river. Mirage he is a tall man with bulging sky-blue eyes and an embarrassed manner. He looks as though he were a little too large for his skin, and you feel that he would be more comfortable if it were a trifle looser. His hair, very smooth and crisp, fits so tightly on his head that it gives you the impression of a wig, and you have an almost irresistible inclination to pull it. He has no small talk. He hunts for topics of conversation and, racking his brain to no purpose, in desperation offers you a whiskey and soda. He is in charge of the B.A.T., and the building in which he lives is office, go-down, and residence all in one. His parlor is furnished with a suite of dingy upholstered furniture placed neatly round the walls, and in the middle is a round table. A hanging petroleum lamp gives a melancholy light, and an oil stove heat. In appropriate places are richly framed oleographs from the Christmas numbers of American magazines, but he does not sit in this room. He spends his leisure in his bedroom. In America he has always lived in a boarding-house where his bedroom was the only privacy he knew, and he has gotten the habit of living in one. It seems unnatural to him to sit in a sitting-room. He does not like to take his coat off, and he only feels at home in shirt-sleeves. He keeps his books and his private papers in his bedroom. He has a desk and a rocking-chair there. He has lived in China for five years, but he knows no Chinese and takes no interest in the race among whom in all likelihood the best years of his life will be spent. His business is done through an interpreter, and his house is managed by a boy. Now and then he takes a journey of several hundred miles into Mongolia, a wild and rugged country, either in Chinese carts or on ponies, and he sleeps at the wayside inns where congregate merchants, drovers, herdsmen, men-at-arms, ruffians, and wild fellows. The people of the land are turbulent. When there is unrest he is exposed to not a little risk. But these are purely business undertakings. They bore him. He is always glad to get back to his familiar bedroom at the B.A.T., for he is a great reader. He reads nothing but American magazines, and the number of those he has sent to him by every mail is amazing. He never throws them away, and there are piles of them all over the house. The city in which he lives is the gateway into China from Mongolia. There dwell the teeming Chinese, and through its gates pass constantly the Mongols with their caravans of camels, endless processions of carts drawn by oxen which have brought hides from the illimitable distances of Asia rumbled noisily through its crowded streets. He is bored. It has never occurred to him that he lives a life in which the possibility of adventure is at his doors. He can only recognize it through the printed page, and it needs a story of daring-do in Texas or Nevada, of hairbreadth escape in the South Seas, to stir his blood. End of section 12. Recording by Nick Number.